Michael Osterlink here, and I'm speaking with James Scott, who's Senior Fellow and Co-Founder of the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology, and author of more than 30 books with nine bestsellers on the topics of health IT, Internet of Things, Energy Sector Cybersecurity, Nation State Cyber Espionage, and more. He advises to more than 25 congressional offices, caucuses, and committees on cyber warfare and cybersecurity, as well as to NATO and federal agencies, including the Department of Energy, NSA, HHS, NASA, NIST, and others. How you doing, James? <laughs> good. How are you? Good, good. Uh, first of all, I want to uh, thank you for joining us at our Hill briefing a couple weeks back on the vulnerability to hacking of electronic voting machines. Oh, yeah. That, I think we got a lot of accomplished on, on that. I, um, it, you know, standing room only, that was, that's always a good indicator. You know? Yeah, I, I was actually <laughs> very impressed with the standing room only, especially for congressional briefing uh, on, on the topic. So thank you for joining us, and your presentation was fantastic. Um, before we kind of get into all the different aspects of cybersecurity, can you give us kind of a background what led you into this field? Yeah, um, wow. I just kind of um, fell into it. I'm a, I'm a writer, so um, I started just, uh, you know, writing articles and things like that, which then turned into books. Um, I've always had a, a connection here to the Hill. Um, so I was, I started getting asked to come in and, um, you know, brief in the Senate and the House, um, you know, on, on what I was writing, um, electronic health record, uh, security and um, dark web, black market, uh, that sort of thing. And um, I don't know, it just evolved into uh, cybersecurity within critical infrastructure. So it's a pretty small niche, you know. It, most people don't even realize it's a it's a thing. But um, but yeah, and then the federal agencies came on um, soon after that. And um, I think that the toughest part is um, the toughest lesson that I learned is to not advise to freshman offices because they might not get reelected. <laughs> and um, see, you know, the C-suite within uh, the federal agencies, um, you know, going in there with someone that has been there for a while and then, uh, you know, will be staying. You know what I mean? That, right, right. The turnover in these positions is draining. So we really, um, we really stepped back and looked at our advisory in Congress and uh, this year in particular, um, we're, we're advising specifically offices that have demonstrated um, with technology good bipartisan uh, leadership. Nice. And, um, you know, more technocentric, cyber literate offices. So we're specifically uh, dealing with them starting this year, you know, as opposed to everybody. That's great, and actually, technical literacy is something I do want to talk to you about. But before we get there, you recently just got back from Europe, including Iceland, uh, on a book tour. Can you tell us a little bit about your most recent book, uh, one among thirty that you've written? Yeah, boy, um, I don't remember which recent one. I think the Dragnet Surveillance uh, Nation one. Um, we uh, we're seeing a real problem with Dragnet Surveillance capitalists. Um, the danger with surveillance is not with the NSA or CIA or the so-called Vault 7 disclosures, which are really 
pretty simple exploits if, if you are familiar with espionage and things like that. Um, the real damage is it's coming from the dragnet surveillance capitalists like Facebook, like Microsoft, Google. Um, and then with uh, the ISPs now, like Comcast and AT&T, um, lobbying so hard in Congress for SJ Res 34, which, which allows ISPs to collect your metadata. And if you know anything about you know, nation state or sophisticated mercenary or sophisticated cyber criminal gangs, if they want to target, for example, uh, critical infrastructure executives with elevated privileges, you can keep the OPM records, you can keep the electronic health records. If you get that unscrubbed uh, metadata, you can you can psychographically target these executives with surgical precision. And this is where it's going to get scary. The other scary part about Dragnet surveillance capitalism is the, um, the perception stealing. We didn't see hacking in the election. What we saw was propaganda and perception stealing. It wasn't even perception management. They were stealing the perception of uh, the population you know, with so-called disclosures, when fake news, or whatever you regard as fake news. Um, so this is going to be compounded with the more fluid weaponization of vectors like social media um, in the next elections. So Congress basically, and it's, and it's not just nation states, the, the people that I'm most afraid of during the elections are the special interest groups in the United States with with organizations like big data analytics organizations that specialize in psychographic targeting, like um, Cambridge Analytica, you know, when when you take this metadata and you have an adversarial uh, mindset and you exfiltrate that data before it's scrubbed, that's when things get dangerous. So that's why we put it out there. There's, it's going to be a real problem, and we like to be the first to talk about stuff. So, you know, that's what we. Well, the, another topic for us to talk about today as well, then, is uh, the uh, capitalistic surveillance dragnet. Um, obviously a huge issue now, and will be even a bigger issue down the road. But before we get there, there's a, a mental map that I use that's helpful for me in thinking through and talking about these security-related issues. And I just want to put it out there to see if it's a useful framework for you for our conversation. And if it's not, we can just put it aside. But it, it's just a way for me to kind of categorize different aspects of, of security. And I, and I use a, a kind of a four-quadrant model. Um, one would be physical security, looking at building bridges, dams, iPhones, pacemakers. You know, the scale is unimportant, just things, in the, in, you know, physical things. Um, a, a second aspect of that would be digital. You know, movement of ones and zeros through various networks or software that helps organize and make meaning out of these ones and zeros. Uh, psychological, cognitive, behavioral, how people think and act in the world, and then cultural, you know, what are the cultural expectations around security, and uh, the kind of that four broad categories is kind of a way for me to kind of break things apart and look at things and see how things relate with one another, and I think one mistake we happen to make, not you and I necessarily, but just humans, is we, we narrow cast ourselves to, oh, it's all about this one thing, it's all about this other thing as opposed to taking a more comprehensive and holistic view of things. And my take from you, without you even knowing this, you know, kind of these four, four areas, 
is that you actually, you and your organization, the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology, do look at things more holistically. Yeah, um, we, we, we don't get on the bandwagon, you know, with, uh, during the elections, CrowdStrike put that report out that talked about, uh, you know, attribution to the Russian nation state, they have forensic proof, blah, 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 blah. We were one of the only organizations that kept coming out when, when I would do interviews. And I'd be like, I, I guarantee that's gonna end up being retracted. You know, because there is no proof. And you can't make attribution that quick on that type of breach. Um, the same thing with um, the, you know, WannaCry in North Korea. Um, no, it wasn't North Korea. The best, you know, the best that you could hope for is that it's a, a, a faction of um, uh, Lazarus Group, which is PLA, that Moonlight had as mercenaries, and made, and it, it was probably a someone who helped write um, code for a particular part, um, and then they released it into the wild, and it was able to succeed for two reasons. One, it was a ransomware worm, so it self-replicated, and second, people are cyber-hygienically apathetic. So if you're going to be lackadaisical about your uh, cyber hygiene as an individual um, and an organization, yeah, you're going to you're going to get hit, you know, and that's just how it works. And um, you know, so yeah, we we take everything into consideration, and a lot of the time we put out the material that's going against what the mainstream is saying. Yeah, I did see that you guys. Uh question the whole North Korea thing. And there's an interesting article today, I think it's the Wall Street Journal about North Korea. Um, there's, I think they have like four or 5,000, allegedly, I mean, this is from the Wall Street Journal, so you know, I'm not, I'm not confirmed from my, not confirmed from uh, you know, CI or anything like that, but um, active cyber uh, guys divided into three different sections, if I remember reading correctly. Um, one focusing on South Korea, one focusing on, on, on business, like banks and such. Um, and I'm, I'm curious because you know, I know you guys, are, you all have written about China, Russia, North Korea, etc. What's the state of play in terms of these other countries creating whole cyber units whose purpose is, is either to access and gather information for espionage's purposes or, as you mentioned earlier, as part of an information warfare architecture? Yeah, um, interesting. So a, a few things on that. Uh, most countries now are coming up with offensive cyber programs. Um, you have Hail Mary, Hail Mary organizations like um, ISIS, um, and then you have Hail Mary State, like um, North Korea. These are organizations that have been sanctioned to death. There's nothing else they have to lose. So they'll be reckless. I'm more afraid of, like when you look at our energy grid, you know, while a Ted Koppel blackout style um, blackout nationwide is darn near impossible, a, a northeastern blackout like we had a few years back, right, right. Um, yeah, with a cyber kinetic component to it, um, that's not only realistic, but that's probable. And it's not going to come from uh, Russia. It's not going to come from China. It's not even going to come from Iran. It's going to come from a place like North Korea. Um, you know, so or or a, uh, uh, a caliphate initiative where they have um, a uh, a lone wolf here willing mm -hmm. to act. He's only been self-radicalized. Um, 
and uh, now he's being jihadized. So usually the jihadization aspect takes weeks, if not long, because the if the person is already a self-radicalizing wound collector, all they need is a reason to act. So I the the, the blackout style attack, this the cyber and kinetic attack will come from that type of um, actor as opposed to a nation state that has something to lose. So what is that you're familiar with the U.S. government doing, whether the U.S. military, the various branches, or intelligence and law enforcement, to counter uh, both lone wolves and uh, nation state actors and anything and anyone in between? Yeah, you know, they're doing a lot. They're hardening their systems. Um, you know, they're becoming more agile. Uh, I, I was at the Pentagon with uh, Bill Merriam yesterday. He's the acting CIO of Air Force, uh, of the Air Force. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this. And, and they're trying to get off of the, I mean, not just his organization, but the other federal agencies. Are, they're trying to get off of legacy systems, minimize their digital footprint. Um, so, so they're doing a lot from a defense perspective. Um, offensive cyber, um, our only technological peer in the adversarial space is Russia. China's, from, from a technical perspective, China as a nation state APT is still well behind. Um, and I, I was briefing the uh, US Economic, uh, US-China Economic and Security Review Commission, um, just, I mean, five of the governors. And um, the, what I was telling them is that the, the risks coming out of China, they're not, they're not exclusively cyber. Um, it's, it's their 13 five-year plan, which almost holds the nation hostage. Um, and they have everyone. Uh, involved. They have the, the Chinese Student and Scholar Associations at American universities. Um, they're constantly pushing the Chinese Communist Party agenda here in the U.S. For example, is um, Dalai Lama is coming, uh, uh, I think, sometime in June. Um, and in San Diego, the um, Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party used the Chinese Student and Scholar Associations at universities in the San Diego area, I think it was, and um, to protest him coming. Um, they also used the, the Tongs and um, the Triad uh, to, as enforcers and espionage. Wow. Uh, so they're extremely active um, kinetically here in the U.S. And, uh, um, you know, so... It, it's, it's interesting because it's like this onslaught of attack at every conceivable layer and the variation of those attacks. And it's constant. And it's not just against our um, federal sector. They're pilfering IP from research labs. You know, and, you know, it, it, it's very dangerous from an economic perspective um, what we're doing, what, what China is doing. The Russian nation state, again, the, the most stealthy and sophisticated. Um, if you find them on your network, it's because they wanted you to find them. There's a whole psychological value to that and also a demonstration of skill. So a lot of times when the forensics team is in there, they're like, oh my gosh, hammer toss or 
you know, the, these uh, um, these hyper-evolved exploits, and you find out that they've been in your network for three years, and the, the shock value and the panic, you know, and they've already moved on to a different type of malware that probably has a beachhead in your network on a vulnerable device that's been Frankensteined into your IoT microcosm. So they'll find a vulnerability, and you'll only find them when they want you to find them. But, but, our, but to go back to, um, you know, we have, um, you know, Gil uh, Levinina, who's doing, uh, he's the uh, counter-intel director at DNI. Um, he's doing a lot to um, defend and to protect our nation from uh, the whistleblower epidemic. Um, you, if you look over at NASA, that's another real techno, um, the technology-driven organization, obviously. So um, you, we're seeing a lot of good communication between, you know, pairs like um, Jerry Davis, who's the CIO of NASA Ames, and Rob Powell, who's a senior advisor at NASA, uh, to the to the CIO's office. Um, Chris Valsha, uh, Vlash, and um, uh, Leo Scamp, I cannot pronounce these names anymore, Scanlon, um, the CISO and Deputy CISO over at HHS, um, Senator Marquis, Congressman Langevin. These are, and, I mean, the electricity ISAP, we were just there at MITRE last week. These, everyone's working hard to defend against these guys, but the, the problem is the, the space is hyper-evolving and we have next-gen attacks with legacy system defenses in a lot of times. So we have to get past the bureaucracy right here. Let me ask you about the hyper-evolution. Um, my experience working on public policy for almost 20 years now is that uh, the government is usually slow to respond to anything, and once they've responded to something, it's usually, you know, a <laughs> little too late and in the wrong direction. Um, are, there, are some of the people that you're mentioning, uh, I have to imagine that they're, they're thinking outside of the conventional box and creating uh, systems that are adaptive to the adaptive attacks that we're receiving um, and that there's good money going into research both in the private sector and in the, in the public sphere to figure out how to do these kind of things better. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. so you have... Um Senator Markey, for example, mm -hmm. he's doing the uh, the cyber. They're putting together the Cyber Shield Act, um, and we've been working with them on that. Um, gave some suggestions. We um, agreed to socialize it for them. Um, you know, he's you know this this bill will push security by design, which is what you know last last year I remember with sitting there with Curtis Dukes. Um, the information assurance director at NSA, and um, we were, we were constantly going over um, security by design with um, Tony Scott, the federal um, CIO. Again, same thing with our advisory, and when we would talk with him. It would be about security by design. Craig Tuhill, uh, Greg Tuhill, the nice. federal CISO, hmm? um, great guy. Um, you know, uh, but before he could really do anything with the new administration, uh, he, ha he ended up um, being asked to resign, you know? Um, right, right. But then you have these, these bulldogs, like, um, you know, Bill Marion, you know, 
CIO of Air Force, and uh, um, Bill Evanina at DNI. Like the, these guys, they they they're leaders. You I, know, I, and, go ahead. I have to imagine there's hopefully not just inter uh, intra agency discussions on these things, but inter agency. So this guy who's cutting edge in the Air Force is talking to the guys at the Federal Reserve, and the guys at the Federal Reserve are talking to DHS. You know, is there is, is there yeah. those kind of conversations? I hope that are occurring as well. Uh, we, I, from what I know, uh, we're the only ones doing that in cybersecurity and critical infrastructure for national security. Ah. So we have dinners, um, like the other uh, of the other night. We had um, Chris and Leo uh, from. Uh, HHS, we had Bob Powell from NASA, um, and then we brought in a private sector um, organization, and we just had dinner and we were talking about uh, machine learning based artificial intelligence and how to really get that out there. And so we, we're constantly, the, the problem in the federal space right now is there's no um, way for CISOs in the agencies to communicate. And um, hmm. Greg Tufel was, he put the, the Federal CISO Council together, the Federal CIO Council um, under uh, Tony Scott's leadership was great. I was really, uh, I, oh man, it, it was, he didn't even tell us he was resigning. Um, we saw it in a tweet. And uh, that was, that was, um, that was tough because we were, between him and Greg, we were seeing a lot of uh, traction with cyber, you know, and, and movement. I mean, so, you know, uh, uh, Tony Scott came up with a 30-day cyber sprint post OPM, and uh, that was great. And he came up with all these ways to get off legacy systems and to upgrade networks. Um, but now I, I'm not seeing any real communication or talk there. Um, but with among CISOs in the federal agency space, there's no uh, kind of leadership bringing them together uh, at this time, which, so we're just taking people from the bigger agencies and connecting them. Good. Um, yeah. Damn. Uh, unfortunate that it's not happening organically, but great on you guys for making it happen. Because yeah, uh, <clears throat> I have to imagine that, you know, best practices will emerge. It'd be nice to spread the information out to the various agencies so they can implement. Um, I, I had a thought. You, you're talking about um, you know uh, the evolution of the attacks on our systems and the need to evolve our systems to protect ourselves from these attacks. Uh, thinking in terms of evolution, um, are, is anyone looking at biological systems as kind of a model to to figure out how complex adaptive systems can respond to threats, like our own immune system might respond to an outside threat? Is anyone doing that kind of work? Um. Not, not, I mean, not that I'm aware of, maybe at DARPA or something, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, well, they, they are doing a lot now, like in the Intel community with artificial intelligence and machine learning, mm -hmm. um, deep learning. And, uh, you know, so I see a lot of movement there and the Good. only, um, yeah, actually, I, I'm, not, I'm not seeing, I haven't heard anything about that, but that would be really interesting. Well, because I have to imagine, this, I was going to actually ask you this question, because uh, I know you guys talk and write about the Internet of Things. You know, everything is going to be online in, in you know, any minute now. Um, but a lot of these devices are going to be ubiquitous to the human body. 
you know, either they're going to be add-ons like a watch or earring or eye shades or glasses or whatever, or actually inside the human body in time, you know, as we as become more as we become more transhuman, and as uh, these things interact with our biology and the outside ecology, it'd be interesting to look at those models of how you know our own systems have evolved in terms of our own biological systems to deal with threats, and that could be an interesting model to reflect upon and build counter uh, counter defenses against the, these kind of attacks, uh, especially as we embed these things in our own biology. Yeah, yeah, like insulin pumps and yeah. things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that looks interesting. So uh, you mentioned CyberShield, <laughs> and I know uh, Senator Markey, when he was actually a congressman in the House, we were closely with him on health IT and uh, medical privacy. I know that was a big thing with his office uh, probably about a decade ago, if, if not longer ago, when I used to work with his office. Um, tell us a little bit about CyberShield, some of the highlights and what, what it would do. Yeah, CyberShield is it's still evolving right now. Um, they did the right thing. They, they went, they're going out to industry as well, which we're also helping with doing roundtables and stuff. Um, but they were smart. They reached out to industry where you know, the brains in cyber are, you know, not, not saying that NSA or whatever, but I mean, the, the evolution is, is being carried on the backs of the private sector and with research and things like that, which rightfully so, that's a good thing. Um, what, what the Cyber Shield Act does is it offers manufacturers of technology an opportunity to have their, uh, to uh, voluntarily include their technology into almost like an energy star rating system. Okay. Uh, so talking about this, it's like, wow, that's a new idea, but how do you actually do it? Um, a lot of people get stuck on the actual um, asymmetry of cyberspace and technology and the continuously evolving and changing threat. So one of the suggestions that we made, which actually <laughs> I, I'm surprised it took off as fast as it did, but, um, but it's a great starting point for, for this, use that, and that's using a QR code um, on, you know, on the actual device and um, having it linked to a uh, dynamic database that is uh, that uses machine learning based artificial intelligence or, or just AI um, to run multiple uh, you know algorithms and uh, come up with a real time. Uh, dynamic score, and uh, wow. this this is how it can work. This is how the device can. This is how it can be five years old, and you can still get a real time as of right now rating on your the technology that you're buying. And uh, this is how it will. This is how that will materialize. And uh, so obviously, um, you know, Malcolm Parkins over at. Uh, Silence. Um, you know, he's a friend. He's an ICIT fellow. Uh, he was on one of the uh, panels that briefed Congress. Um, he did a blog post on it. So, you know, he's he's in there uh, as an expert in artificial intelligence. Silence has some amazing talent uh, when it comes to algorithms and deep learning, machine learning, AI. Um, so we're just trying to bring as many people to the table that that can give non-bureaucratic, realistic, actionable 
um, advisory on this. And then the other component is the um, information uh, uh, assimilation side of things where you're educating the public on cyber hygiene and why is it important to um, buy a device that's cyber secure. Um, another, another thing to keep in mind with this, um, why it's so timely, uh, a lot of people don't understand, like post Mirai with the, with the Dynatar, um, people don't understand these technologies that are manufactured in China as part of China's 13th five-year plan. There is a uh, Chinese Communist Party official on the manufacturing floor of all these companies, and they are they are tasked with making sure that the 13th five-year plan transcends everything, including the devices being manufactured that's going to be distributed in the United States and Europe. And um, so they intentionally leave vulnerabilities and backdoors in these technologies so they can enslave the device and uh, make it work for whatever their agenda is at that time. And this is this is something that's very real. This is this is one of the reasons that we agreed to get involved with Cyber Shield Act because it's a nonpartisan bill and because it's going to be taking on these issues head on. You, you also, you all wrote a book on Chinese espionage and cyber, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll make sure we include that in the show notes as well. And I'll include information on Cyber Shield. I assume I can find stuff on your all site as well as uh, Senator Markey? Uh, yeah, you'll probably find more on uh, our site. We did a, a post, you know, it was encouraging. I knew this thing had wheels. Uh, or legs, whatever the term is, when we saw the first week. Um, for that blog post, we got well over 60,000 views the first week. Wow. And uh, so that was substantial. That was very convincing and encouraging. You know, so that's when we decided to put a little more time into it. Uh, speaking of uh, your all's reach, i got to say I'm, I'm really impressed. Just on social media, you're, it's at uh, ICIT.org, O-R-G. Um, you guys have a lot, a lot of followers who love following every pronouncement you guys make, uh, which is wonderful. So you have a great reach into the cyber world. Yeah, so good on you. Um, you you've talked about cyber hygiene. Actually, even before I get there, um, I got some questions. I, I posted on Facebook that I was going to be interviewing you, and I have some questions that came in. So this might be a good time to ask some of the questions, and I can get into my own questions afterwards. Is that cool? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, Heather asks, she says, uh, many cyber professionals greeted the change in administrations with calm, believing that internally the cyber field is apolitical and not, would not be ruled by partisanship. Is that still your assessment? What is most at risk? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think with, with politics, partisanship always rules, unfortunately. Um, you know, again, we're not political at all here, but mm -hmm. I will say that from a technology perspective, I, I'm seeing the, the Democrat offices um, push hardest for for cyber. Um, now, oh, for cybersecurity and critical infrastructure resiliency when it comes to cyber and um, preserving um, constitutional rights and, and privacy uh, you know, with, with these surveillance type 
um, programs um, and technology. You know, so I, I'm seeing EFF, ACLU do some good work. We're not affiliated with either of those, but um, but I'm but as far as bureaucracy, the the problem that we have is when we're working with an office and they need a uh, a co-sponsor who's on the other side of the aisle. It's really strange because no one communicates. You know, it's crazy because people think, oh, well, they're Democrats. All the Democrats uh, have relationships. Oh, he's Republican. All the Republicans have relationships. No. I, I mean, half of my business on the Hill is introducing Democratic Democrat offices or Republican offices to each other on, on the same side of the aisle. And they could be, you know, just down the hall from each other. It, it right, blows right. my mind. But um, I, I don't know. I think I, I'm seeing more, uh, more hiring of um, cybersecurity actual experts in the offices. That's new. Good. Um, but I think the bureaucracy in the political realm is still um, there. Yeah. Got it. Well, <clears throat> as I mentioned to you offline, I'll more than happy to open some doors on the center-right Republican side of things and see what we can do to be helpful. Because um, obviously this is an, a very important issue and, and I'd hate for it to be one of those things where we we look back and go, oh, we should have done something after the fact and something horrible happens or multiple horrible things happen. Um, so let me, actually, let me, one more question for you. This is from Terry. Um, what's, what's the ongoing impact that's forecasted due to the NSA tool leaks. WannaCry, and he says, WannaCry used only two exploits while Eternal Rock used seven. Can you speak to that? Yeah, WannaCry, it's important to note that WannaCry was barely functional. So the idea that it's a nation state was just hilarious from to begin with. It was, you know, but organizations that have a widget to sell and by fear you know, fear-mongering and gloom and doom, they're going to steal the per steer the perception of the reader to their uh, silver bullet solution um, to take care of the problem. So that was that was the problem. Everyone kept saying North Korea, North Korea. Um, you know, so this this at best, if there is a connection to a to a nation state, at best, this exploit was. Uh, you know, a Lazarus group uh, individual or fraction um, who was not necessarily an expert in ransomware um, code from a previous exploit and kind of um, did their own thing. Um, the, the ransomware was actually difficult to, uh, even if you wanted to pay, it, it's, it was difficult to pay. Um, you have to set up this chat feature, you know, just, it, it's just silly. So that's why no money was made. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so that's important to know that, uh, WannaCry was not a, um, an efficient weaponization of encryption. Got it. So there's a whole bunch of other issues I want to talk about, but I, I'm recognizing the time. Um, so what I'd like to do is if you'd be willing to have you come back, because I'd like to talk, have you talk about the Talon Manual 2.0 about NATO, Stuxnet, more about Cyber Jihad, 
Um, I'd love to get into the you know, um, cybersecurity literacy, which we seem to lack in this country, generally speaking, cyber hygiene, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so James, would you be willing to come back and continue this conversation? Absolutely not. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Sweet. Um, so before we uh, wind this down, can you tell us uh, your website address and things along those lines and where people could find your mul multiple books? Yeah, let's see. What is our web address? It's um, iCITech.org. Um, and they can find our books on Amazon. Um, and uh, uh, we also... When we, when we write content, the first thing that we do is liberate it and make it available for free um, so that everyone has an opportunity to, uh, to read it so there's no vectorialist, uh, vectorialist capitalism or gatekeeper uh, thing with information. Information in its natural state should be free. And um, one thing that we do, we have started doing now is just because we're a nonprofit, um, it only makes sense to start publishing them and making them available on places like Amazon. So we just started doing that. So the download versions, for the most part, are still available. Um, but it would be great if people can keep buying the books. So, And, and I highly re recommend them. Um, I've uh, gotten a few of them so far. I, I, I haven't read all 30. <laughs> but I'm yeah. working my way through them, and, and they're uh, highly informative. So I'll definitely put in the show notes access to your various books and uh james thanks for joining me i look forward to continued conversations sure absolutely all right take care